Good, good morning. Happy almost New Year. My name is Isaiah Mackler. For those of you who don't know, I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone Bible Church. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. We're going to be opening our Bibles this morning to Philippians 2. It's New Year's Day tomorrow, if you don't know that. I don't know where you've been, but um, sometimes around New Year's, people like to do this thing called New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions. I know that those three words are going to bring very different uh, feelings to some of you. Some of you may groan at that phrase, right? You groan at the very thought of it. In fact, some of you may have dreaded coming to church this morning on New Year's Eve because you expected to hear about New Year's resolutions. You're like, why would I come and hear about things that I will fail at? Others of you are a little bit more, uh, more optimistic people in general. You look forward to making some plans for the new year. You look forward to executing them and thinking how you're going to accomplish the, these changes. Well, regardless of your feelings about resolutions, whether you're a resolution maker or breaker, as God's people, we need to keep changing. We need to keep changing. We may not make resolutions. We may not set some goals for ourselves at the beginning of the year, but we do need to keep changing. As we've been looking at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to maximize upon the new life which God has given us, and that's going to require us planning on how to change. Philippians 2, 12-13 said this, and then I'll, I'll read the larger passage in a minute. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, you may not have made any plans to work out in this upcoming year, but we do need to work out our salvation. So what kind of plans... How have you been thinking, how have you been processing about the ways that you need to change as you work out your salvation? When it comes to changing, I think everyone wants the easiest way to get the most impact, right? The easiest way to get the most impact. Now, that might be in regards to our health. It might be in regards to our finances. For some of you, it might be investing in cryptocurrencies, for other, and I don't know if you've recently heard about uh, trying a diet specific to your blood type. I don't know what the doctors here think about that. Regardless of what you think about cryptocurrency or blood type diets, I'm sure we can all agree that in general, and I'm not going to call, even call those things fads. There might be some, some, some big believers in those things. In general, though, fads fail to deliver, right? Fads fail to deliver. They make promises that they can't keep. You've probably heard the phrase, individual results may vary, right? Individual results may vary. And that's legalese for maybe works, maybe won't, right? It keeps the, the, those who make the, inform, the infomercials out of trouble. But when it comes to God's word, there's no need for disclaimers like that. 
This morning, we're going to look at guaranteed results of doing everything without grumbling or disputing. Guaranteed results of doing everything without grumbling or disputing. Paul is going to motivate us by showing us four results of doing everything without grumbling or disputing. And these results really are shocking. They really are shocking. He really is going to promise, I won't say a completely new you, but a transformed you. And I think that the picture that he paints is so compelling that you may leave this morning doing one of two things. Ditching all your others, other New Year's resolutions so you can focus on this one, because I know you've got a long stack of them. Or maybe, and maybe more seriously, making a determined plan to change. Even, even if it does happen to almost be the New Year's and you've sworn off that kind of thing. So today we're going to look at four results of doing everything without grumbling, without murmuring, without complaining, and without disputing. So you, uh, as we look at these four results, we're going to see them in verses 15 and 16 of Philippians 2. You also notice in there, though, that Paul gives some instruction or gives a reminder in verse 15. So if you've got your outline with you, it's, it's got four results, and inside there is an instruction. It's not a pretty outline, but it really follows along with, with the text, and we'll see why Paul does that. So let's read together from Philippians 2, verses 12 through 16. Now, remember that uh, Paul wrote to, to the church at Philippi, a church he planted about 10 years prior. It was, it was overall a very healthy church, a very joyful church, but a church that had started going through some difficulties. It was facing opposition from without, facing some disunity and fractions within. But overall, Paul still writes to them a very encouraging letter. He does want them to continue, though, in their salvation, to make the most out of it. So I'm going to start at Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can call you that name today because of what your son, Jesus Christ, has done. We thank you, God, that you are a God who saves, a God who brings salvation, a God who brings trans transformation so that we can live in a way that brings glory to you. I thank you, Father, for giving your word to us. I thank you, Father, that you don't leave us with, with, with just big commands and big challenges like work out our salvation, but that you get into the details of doing everything without grumbling or disputing. I thank you, Father, that you know that our hearts need to be motivated. Lord, simply the fact that you command us would be enough, but yet, Lord, you give us motives and you tell us the results that follow. And I pray, Lord, that we would be uh, transformed as we look into your word this morning. Your word is powerful. 
And I pray, Father, that it would have a powerful effect upon us, that you would give us ears that are open to hearing, Lord. I pray, Father, that the teaching of your word would, 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 would expose it well, Lord. It would make it clear. I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom as we seek to apply. Please, Lord, help us to be transformed people, the kind of people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. I can't believe you're not shocked, and you probably are, because I know I am the more I think about it. In verse 14, uh, Paul begins with a very kind of clear, practical instruction on how they are to work out their salvation, and how they are to maximize, how they to make the most out of it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Exactly what that means and why Paul makes such a big deal of it. But then in the beginning of verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. And that really brings us to our first reason, the, trans, the transformation of your character. This is a reason why we are to do everything without grumbling and disputing. It is the transformation of your character. The New American Standard I just read has, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Or the ESV has, that you may be blameless and innocent. And either way you translate this, whether you take the verb to mean you're proving yourself to be, or simply that you be blameless and innocent. This verse isn't talking about how we're declared righteous with God. It's not how we become righteous. We know that we're only made righteous, we're only declared righteous by faith in his son. Romans 3.22 talks about how we can be made right with God. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness only comes through believing in Jesus. Philippians 2.15 is about you living out today what God has declared you to be if you are in his son. It's not a question here of whether when Satan accuses you and lists out your sins that Christ won't defend you. And won't say, wait, but I died for him. We're not talking about that here. It's a question whether those who have been forgiven, who have been declared righteous, are going to live consistently with their new nature. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says, so that you will prove yourselves to be. Really, it's, it's, it's maybe even more simply that you will be blameless and innocent. And I think that the New American Standard wants you to not think that you can make yourselves blameless and, and innocent. So that you prove yourselves to be, so, so that you live out what God has made you to be. So that you're blameless and innocent. This is much as Peter challenged the saints in 2 Peter 3.14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And that's what we're talking about. Being diligent, working hard, putting effort in, in our practical outgoing lives to be spotless and blameless. What does this word blameless mean? It means to be free from, from accusation regarding your character. Free from accusation regarding your character. To be irreproachable. Not able to be accused. For someone to open up your closets and not find any skeletons in them. Luke 1.6 describes those who are blameless. Describing... Uh, uh, John's parents, uh, Zacharias and is it Zacharias and, 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 and Elizabeth, they are both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Walking blamelessly. 
They took God's law seriously and that they obeyed it. Philippians 3, verse 6 describes Paul himself even before being saved in his desire to obey God's law describes him as to zeal a persecutor of the church but as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless now Paul had the wrong standard standard there he was worried about being blameless in other people's perspective being blameless in the outward conformity to the law but it's still the idea there that he lived blamelessly he looked at God's law and he's like I've done all of it that means that he's when Paul talks about them being blameless, he's talking about them being blameless in their driving and being blameless in their paying their taxes, blameless in their parenting, blameless in their marriage, blameless in every area of their life, upholding God's laws. What blameless means. Verse 16, so that, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent or pure. It's used, that word of of wine that hasn't been watered down or, 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 or gold that is pure. It has the idea of innocence or sincerity. It's when there's a consistency between who you are and what you claim to be. It's not duplicitous, not hiding secret motives or hidden sin. Now, this is very similar to what Paul prayed at the beginning of, of the letter to the, for the Philippians in verses 1, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. He's talking there about them making choices that would lead to them being sincere and blameless. Very similar to this idea here about being blameless and pure. Now, this isn't just God's desire that his children be law-abiding citizens. It is more about us loving obedience, about us taking delight in obeying him and pleasing him and conforming to his commands. Now, as I told you, the result here, this promise is really shocking. There almost seems to be a lack of cause and effect here. It's like one of those of those those infomercials almost, right? Where the guy's displayed with a rock hard abs, and all you have to do is take this one little pill every day. It almost seems like that here, right? And you're thinking, how does being blameless and innocent come from doing everything without grumbling or disputing? Right? Like are like are those two things connected in any way? Blameless and innocent can come from not complaining? Like, what kind of connection is there? Well, we see, though, that Paul intends that. In verse 15, we see at the beginning of there's a so that there. That, that this is the result. And he doesn't explain how this happens. And so we have to think a little bit about it. How does this being blameless and innocent come from doing everything without grumbling or disputing? And I think it's because when we do everything without grumbling or disputing, it requires from us both faith and Submission requires both faith and submission. See, the only way you can obey without grumbling and disputing is when you've subjected your will to God's will. When you've submitted to God's goodness, when you've submitted to his wisdom, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, when you're believing that God knows what is best for your life, 
even if it means like Israel in the wilderness, and we use them as, as the contrast example, and we know from the language here that Paul has Israel in the wilderness in mind. Here they'd gone through this incredible rescue from Egypt, but there were times when they had no water. There were times when they had no food. See, obeying without grumbling or disputing, doing everything without grumbling or disputing, means believing God in the wilderness. Believing God when you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. Believing God when you don't know where your next drink of water is going to come from. When, believing God when you don't know how you're going to get to the promised land. See, the only way we can do everything without grumbling and disputing, it requires us to believe. To be convinced that what comes from the hand of your God toward you is good. Even if it's bad. Right? Because God does allow bad things to happen. But we know that he means it for good. He's going to work it together for good to those who love him. See, doing everything without grumbling and disputing is going to require more than just a commitment to obey his commands. It's going to have to begin with faith that he is loving, that he's good, that he's wise. Really, all obedience has to begin with faith that he's good and loving and wise, that he knows what is best for you. And then it requires you to act upon that knowledge. This was true of you when you first got saved, right? When you were first saved, you submitted to the fact that the Lord is righteous, that he is righteous when he judges you, and that he is righteous when he saves you. You believed that he loved you. You believed that he was willing to save you. You believed that he gave his son for you. That's what you believed when you were first saved. And that's what you have to keep believing if you're going to do everything without grumbling or disputing. See, when you first got saved, believing God and submitting to his righteousness was your first act of obedience. And that's how you have to continue. You have to continue to believe and submit to the fact that he is righteous, that his commands are good, that his decrees are good. That faith that you began your new life with is a faith that you have to go forward in. So when you obey without grumbling, without disputing against God, without raising your fists against God and saying, why, Lord? And I don't mean asking good, honest questions. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But in rebellion against him. When you do that, you're trusting in the goodness and wisdom of God in such a way that you're choosing the path that will lead you to living a blameless and pure life. You're choosing the path that will lead you to living a blameless and pure life. See, we will keep coming to a fork in the road again and again, many times every day. And that fork in the road is going to lead two ways. One is to grumbling and disputing, and the other is to trusting and submitting. One leads to grumbling and disputing, the other to trusting and submitting. So every time you come to an unpleasant responsibility, we have many of those at home or at work, an unexpected challenge, a crushing disappointment. You're going to come to that fork in the road. One leads to rebellion 
Israel in the wilderness experienced that again and again. The other leads to blamelessness and purity. I know for many of you that your life may not be today what you imagined. There's no shortage of what you would choose to be different. Your health, your job, your marriage, your kids. But you being blameless and pure requires you doing everything without grumbling or disputing. We've got some examples here. The time is upon us to even up with the government, right? How will you pay your taxes? Will you be blameless and pure, innocent? Well, if we're going to be blameless and innocent in the way that we pay our taxes... We're going to have to do that without grumbling or disputing. Because grumbling and disputing is what leads us to niggle, to cheat, to lie. Right? If we're going to be blameless in our taxes, we have to begin without grumbling or disputing. Begin with submission and faith. Or maybe you're in a job with a challenging boss. Maybe after a week off, you're not eager to go back. We won't tell them that. But as you think about going to work without grumbling or disputing, as you drive to work without grumbling or disputing, choosing again to believe the goodness of the Lord, as you submit to God's wisdom in the job that he has you in, you will be blameless and pure at work. Whether that's in your work ethic and how hard you work, whether it's in the way that you run from gossip or slandering about your boss, in the way that you work for your boss in a respectful way, in the way that you're content about your salary. You see, if you're not going to trust him, all those things are going to come. You might be tempted to embezzle. All kinds of sin will come if you grumble and dispute against God. But when you're submitted to him, that this is the boss that he's given you for as long as you're at this job, you're going to be blameless and innocent. Or maybe you're in the midst of praying for a spouse. If you are going to be blameless and pure now, you have to be single without grumbling or disputing. You must believe that God and his goodness and his righteousness has planned for you to be single right now, this day. Only then will you not try to find a spouse outside of God's will. Only then will you not look for sexual pleasure outside of marriage. You have to be trusting in his goodness and in his will right now. Or maybe God has given you a particularly strong-willed child. Or maybe God has given you a debilitating health problem. Or maybe he hasn't lifted the darkness that you're experiencing. Do you see what connection, what connection there is between doing everything without grumbling or disputing and whether you're going to remain blameless and pure, innocent? If you do everything without grumbling and disputing, you will be blameless regarding disciplining your children. Faithful again and again. You will be blameless in stewarding the body that God has given you. You'll be blameless as you listen to him and wait on him in your afflictions. But on the other hand, the result of shaking your fist at a God who is sovereign and and good, the result of maligning his character because he hasn't given you what you believe you should have, is only going to result in guilt from broken commands 
or it will result in the hypocrisy of a life in which your words don't match your actions. See, you can't live a godly life. You can't live an innocent and blameless life thinking you're more righteous than he is. It's impossible. You have to submit to his righteousness. You have to believe that he is wise and good even in the very hard things. See, you won't be blameless and pure while protesting his blamelessness, while rioting against his innocence. This is why Paul unites these thoughts here. You being blameless and innocent with doing everything without grumbling and disputing. He's not promising something that's larger than life. This logically follows. Really what he's saying in a sense here, and, and, and I think we could look at many commands that could be argued could be the beginning of holy living. But you can make a strong case for this here. If you do everything without grumbling or disputing, it's going to live to all kinds of transformation in your character. I almost feel like Paul says here, but wait, there's more. Right? Not only is there transformation of character, we see in verse 15, so that you approve yourselves to be blameless and innocent. There's another. And that's the, the confirmation of your lineage. The confirmation of your lineage. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach. Children of God above reproach. We see that in verse 15. Now, once again, and I think that, that we know this here, Paul's not talking about how we become God's children. Just as when he was talking about being blameless and pure, it's not talking about how someone becomes right with God. Becoming God's child begins with God's love. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. The fact that God would look into our world and love us and choose to save us and send his son to die for us is shocking. John 1, verses 12 through 13 tells us how we become God's children, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God's choice who becomes his children, and to them he gives faith. That is how we become God's children. Galatians 3.26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So it's very clear, Paul is not talking here how we become children of God. I think we understand some of what he's talking about when he says children of God above reproach. He's not speaking how we're born into God's family. He's speaking about family resemblance. Of us morally looking like our father. Above reproach means without fault. Morally blameless, conforming to God's laws. Loving God's character. It was a word that was used to describe the animal sacrifices that Israel was supposed to bring. And they were supposed to bring a lamb that was above reproach. It's similar, really, to the previous idea of blameless and innocent, without moral blemishes, without ethical stains, without spiritual deformity, really looking like Jesus Christ, the perfect human. Now, this is in contrast to, to, to Israel, and we looked a couple weeks ago at Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. 
and how Paul clearly has this verse from Moses' song in Deuteronomy in mind while he's writing this passage. And he, there's a contrast here, here to, 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 to Israel. And one commentator translates it from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, like this. Speaking about Israel, they have sinned. They are not his children. They are blemished. And that's from the Song of Moses, describing Israel. They weren't his children. They were blemished. They were not right with God. They weren't like their father. See, Israel revealed through their wilderness grumbling and disputing, among many other sins, that they hadn't been changed by their redemption experience, that they had no spiritual connection with the father, that they didn't share in the father's life. As a nation, Israel had no likeness to God the Father. They revealed nothing about his character by their actions. They revealed a lot about his patience by their actions, but not about how good God is or how holy he is, how perfect he is. So unlike Israel in the Old Testament, Paul affirms that the church can be like our Father. We can glorify God where unregenerate Israel failed. See, Jesus is like the Father, right? So much so that in John 14, 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus was above reproach in regard to God's law. He perfectly revealed the character of the Father. And because saints are united with Jesus, and Paul uses that language again and again, because we are in Jesus if we have faith, Because we have his indwelling spirit, we can be like his son, Jesus Christ. We can be above reproach. We can be like the father, as the son is like the father. See, when we do everything without grumbling or disputing, we reveal what God is like. See, God's law, the commands that he gives us, are a revelation of his character. They are in conformity with his character. By his laws, we get to know more about him. So the more we conform to God's law, the more we conform to the likeness of his son, and the more we reveal the father, just as the son perfectly reveals the father. So when we obey without grumbling or disputing, it's really a snapshot of the father's character. It's like we're saying, look how I'm responding to the disappointing circumstances that life has given me. Whether a blown radiator, whether a Christmas vacation filled with kids' fevers, whether three hours spent on online, on online uh, complaint rooms returning things. I don't know if you guys have ever done that during the holidays. Spent multiple hours trying to return things. In the midst of all those, in the way that we respond to those circumstances, we're like saying, when we do that without grumbling and disputing, that's how good my God is. That's how good of a father he is. I can trust him because he's that good. Yes, we're in the wilderness. We're out of food. We have no water. But Yahweh's my God, my father. Why would I wander from him now? See, now is the perfect time to draw near to him. He's my father. This is how doing everything, the grumbling or disputing, shows our lineage. It shows that the Father, God the Father, is our Father. That it shows what He is like as we are above reproach. 
Belonging to the Father means believing the Father and becoming like the Father. If you saw a picture of my dad, you would know that we are, are related. Some of you have, have met my dad in Czech Republic for a while, but okay. Uh, it's probably true of many of us. If we saw a picture of your parents, we would know that they are related to you, that you're their children. If your family and coworkers read about the character of God and his word, would they know you are his children from the way you do everything without grumbling? If your teachers knew the God of the Bible, would they be able to look at you and say, yes, they're his child. I see his likeness in them. Incredible that that result comes from doing everything without grumbling or disputing. But that's the logic of this passage here. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach. And then, yes, but wait, there's more. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. This brings us to our third result. The first was the transformation of our character. The confirmation of our lineage. The third is the contrast to your culture. In the midst means right in the middle of. Right in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. Crooked, the opposite of straight, unscrupulous, dishonest. Perverse means that we're perverting, this generation is perverting God's ways. Departing from what God has established. Distorting, calling evil good and good evil. I think we see a lot of that in our generation now. Again, this is unlike Israel. We see that in Deuteronomy 32.5. Talking about Israel, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Israel failed. They were not what God called them to be. They were a crooked and perverse generation. But Paul says that we have a different result. That we are above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And, and he uses the picture there not to speak about Israel, but to speak about the world surrounding us. See, we used to be part of that crooked and perverse generation. In our disbelief, we trust, we twisted and corrupted God's character. We, we suspected the goodness of his commands. We hated righteousness and treasured wickedness. But God has rescued us from that crooked and perverse generation. Amen? Galatians 1.4 talks about how Jesus gave himself for our sins so that, he that, so that he might rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. We've been rescued from this crooked and perverse generation. But yet God has chosen to leave us in this world with a purpose. John 17 verses 15 to 16 Jesus says in praying to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But he leaves us in the world. And we see that purpose in Philippians 2.15. We're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Remember, this is the effect of us doing everything without grumbling or disputing. This contrast to our culture. Now, and whether we translate this word appear, we appear as lights, or we shine as lights, practically it doesn't make very much difference here. 
It is a light shining forth. This word light was used of a torch or of a lantern or of lights in a harbor to guide the ships coming home. But it was especially used of stars. That's probably since it was the most commonly, most common usage was the stars, probably what Paul has in mind here. He's thinking of us like being stars in the world, the physical world here. Perhaps the universe is what he's thinking of, as stars in the night sky shining. It's easy to imagine uh, Paul's reading from the Old Testament in Daniel 12.3 is kind of coming into this picture here. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heavens, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Perhaps that, that verse is in the background of his thinking. On the dark background of a twisted and perverse generation, the saints, God's holy ones, will shine like bright stars. Now this is in keeping with the character of our Savior. He is the illuminating light. John 8.12 describes him as the light of the world. Jesus came to be a light to the nations in Isaiah 49, verse 6. Prophesied of the Messiah, the suffering servant, I will also make you a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, as Jesus is light and we are in Christ, we are light as well. Ephesians 5.8 describes that we are formerly part of that. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. 1 Thessalonians 5.5 For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night or darkness. And then finally, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Of course, he's the light of the world, right? He's the one that dispels darkness and brings us to the Father. But we, our characters changed by him. We become the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now Jesus is the light with the capital L. As we become lights with little L's, we're a contrast to the world around us. As we walk in God's ways and according to God's commands, we reveal the goodness of God's character and the extent of the depths of God's wisdom. Now that contrast is exposed in many ways. It's exposed in the differences in the way we spend our time and money, the ways in which we work and who we marry, the way we parent our children and the way we honor our parents, the way we love both our neighbors and our enemies. Our temperament as we face adversity. Our commitment to make disciples. All of this reveals what it is to be a light in the world. Our difference. But in this verse, the first step in in this contrast of being light and darkness and health and sickness and purity and depravity is doing everything without grumbling or disputing. Right? It just follows logically here. This very basic, simple Commitment, do everything without grumbling and disputing. In that way, we can be like Joshua and Caleb, who was such a light in the midst of those other spies coming back. Now, the people of Israel didn't listen. They grumbled and disputed instead. But Joshua and Caleb were a light saying, we believe God's promises. He can take us to the promised land. Our God is good. Our God is powerful. Perhaps there's been times in your life when your Christian witness receded, when your light 
was dim. When you were most like the world. I imagine it was when you were most grumbling against God. In fact, think back. If there's been a period of time when, 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 when really as you think back, you're ashamed of your Christian testimony. Times when you had more in common with darkness. When you were pursuing what God declares is crooked and perverse. Now, I, I know that those times in our past are, are painful to think about, especially if they are descriptive of you after being saved. But as you think back to those times when your likeness to light was so dim, you even questioned yourself whether you were in the light. Were you thankful and submitted? Were you thankful and submitted? Or were you a grumbling, disputing person? See, when we're obsessed that we deserve better, about getting our own way, we won't appear as lights in the world. We'll lose that contrast. But when our eyes are open to the reality of how we've displeased God in the past, of what we deserve apart from His grace, what we've been given in Christ Jesus. And when we respond in thankfulness and trust, rather than grumbling and disputing, our lives are lights that shine the way that Christ shines. We will be that witness and that testimony, that contrast to this dark world, that light in the harbor, that star in the universe. But that has to begin with our commitment toward contentment. To do everything without grumbling or disputing. Again, this is just Paul's logic here. These results flow from this simple command. A command we could have just gone past. Oh yeah, I should be thankful. Now, before Paul goes on to the fourth reason, and you'll see this in your, your notes there, he, he gives an instruction. And I don't know if, if his primary purpose, and really, I think it's inseparable here whether this is a distinguishing feature among those among whom you appear as lights in the world, he says in the beginning of verse 16, holding fast the word of life. And if you're writing in your notes there, you put cling to the gospel. Cling to the gospel. This is a distinguishing feature of those who shine as lights in the sky, who fulfill their function as the light of the world. Pointing, of course, to capital L, light Jesus Christ. He says, holding fast to the word of life. Now, Paul never says, look how easy this is. But there is a simplicity here in the description of those who shine as stars in the heavens, holding fast to the word of life. He wants to define these people further. He wants to describe them. They are people who hold fast to the word of life who cling to the gospel. And I think as he describes them, there's ultimately here an instruction implied. This is what they do. This is what you need to do. Now, it's possible that the word holding fast means holding forth. But most commentators agree it's holding fast. Holding forth would really work well, right? We're shining as lights in the heavens, holding forth the word of life. But... Like I said, most commentators lean on holding fast. And I think that this, the focus of this section being on 
uh, doing everything without grumbling and disputing uh, works, works better with that holding fast rather than holding forth. But the end, of, the end effect is ultimately the same. When you are holding forth the gospel, you're going to be holding fast to it. And when you're holding fast to the gospel, you're going to be holding forth it. Paul is giving us a timely reminder of how this happens, of how we do everything without grumbling or disputing, of how we're blameless and pure, of how we're children of God above reproach, of how we stand out in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. He reminds us how. Holding fast, grasping, clinging to the word of life, to the life-giving word of the gospel, the good news. So what does this holding fast look like? It's to continue as you began, to believe the good news from God's mouth and to remind yourself of that consistently. To continue to believe, to, to continue to cling to what you believed when you were first saved. Believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Believing that God loves sinners and sent Christ to die for them. Believing that we can only be made right with Christ by trusting with God by trusting in his son. See, holding fast to the word of life requires that we repeatedly remind our hearts of the wonder of the gospel. This is what stops us from grumbling and disputing. We hold fast to the wonder of the gospel. We don't become immune to the truth, become inoculated against it. That a gracious, holy God reached down into our world and called sinners to be his children through faith. See, the more we are appropriately devastated by it and surprised by it and sobered again by it and shocked by it and comforted by this truth and refreshed by it and humbled by it, the tighter we cling to it. That's what it is, holding fast to it. So what does it mean to hold fast to it? To what extent should we? Well, I, I imagine, uh, you know, an astronaut in space. All of a sudden, he realizes that the tether has come untied or disconnected. And he's drifting. And how long will he drift? Until he's out of air. Now, how long will his body drift? I don't know. It's space. A long time. What does he do as he realizes he's drifting? He turns and he tries to cast on to something, right? He tries to catch on to that rope. How, how fast would he hold to that rope? In a desperate way, in a hope-filled way, in a relieved way, in an expectant way, in a thankful way. I'm not doomed, right? That's good news holding fast to that rope. And that's what the gospel is to it. As we cling to the word of life, as we cling to Jesus Christ, we remember those core truths which lead to our doing everything without grumbling and disputing. Now, maybe you've been surprised in your life by some particularly good news. You just received an inheritance, awarded a full-ride scholarship. You finally got that long-awaited positive on your pregnancy test. Announcement of, you may now kiss the bride. All those kinds of good news. And we have a euphoria of contentment, right? What do you want? Nothing. I've got such good news, I don't need anything ever. But how long does that last? Right? 
after a few days, we'd start to take for granted what we were previously just shocked by. Whether it's the morning sickness that follows, trying to get into that one class that's closed, the number of bags our new bride brought along on the vacation that we have to carry. See, we so quickly forget. We're astounded, and then we get used to it. See, Israel in the wilderness forgot the miracle of their redemption. And instead of clinging to God's word of life, they doubted those words. And they forsook those words, and they forgot them. Holding fast to the word of life means not forgetting, not leaving Christ, not going to anything else. That's essential to being a contrast in a crooked world, to our blamelessness, to our doing everything without grumbling or disputing. It's not just holding fast to a doctrinal confession or a conviction that something is true, but it's holding fast like that astronaut who's drifting out into space saying, I'm never going to let this go. That's what saving faith is like. So how do we hold fast? By meditating and by believing. By meditating and believing in God's love for sinners. By the amazing grace of election. By God's mercy in sending his son to take the punishment of sinners. By reminding ourselves again and again of God's grace and goodness. And by remembering Remembering what we were like before we were saved. The condition that we were in. The destruction that we had waiting for us. By remembering what we've been saved from and who we've been saved to. That's how we hold fast to the word of life. If you've been grumbling, if you've been disputing with God, if you've just been in general angsty, you've begun to let your grip, begun to let go of your grip on the word of life. You've begun to let go by thinking, I deserve better. What about deep space is so alluring? That's totally what we do when we start letting go of the gospel. right? We start looking instead and saying, oh, that thing is shiny. I want that. I want better. I want to be treated better. If only I had this, I'd be happy. right? That's the allure of deep space. That's saying, I'm going to let go and drift. Hold fast to the word of life. That's why the book of Hebrews is written. Hold fast to the word of life. And as we do, we're going to have 